This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Hello and welcome to today's mini masterclass with me, James Roy. I'm the producer at Westwards. And today I'm talking to a friend of Westwards, Laura Grease. Now, Laura is a multi-award winning author. She began a career in journalism in the 90s, the late 90s, I hasten to add. Uh, she was named both South Australian and Australian Young Journalist of the Year in 2001. She's written three novels and seven non-fiction books. Most of them, um, or a lot of them, are about dogs, she tells me, because she's a bit of a dog nut. Uh, all published in Australia and New Zealand by Penguin Random House. Some of her books have also been published overseas. She also won, and this is interesting, the 2019 and 2020 Dog Writers Association of America's prestigious Rio Award. I think I need to know a bit more about that. Uh, now, Laura lives in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales. She's currently a PhD English candidate at the University of Newcastle researching what I like to call um, settler noir, uh, 19th century true crime writing and a 180 year old murder, which we have spoken about a little bit in the past in, on, a, on a previous podcast. And she uh, received a National Council of Women Australia Day Award for Women's History and is currently the Female Orphan School Writer-in-Residence at the Whitlam Institute uh, Female Orphan School. So she's uh, doing that on under the banner of Westwards and the Whitlam Institute at the moment. So after all of that, hey, Laura, how are you? I'm good, thanks, James. Tell us a little bit about what you've been doing at the Orphan School just to, to kick off. Yeah, absolutely. So the Female Orphan School was the first uh, social welfare institution in New South Wales. Um, and what I'm doing is researching the period from 1800 to 1850. Um, after 1850, it changed a little bit in terms of its remit, I suppose, what types of um, girls they were taking in. And um, then it became uh, a psychic psychiatric psychic hospital psychic. <laughs> psychiatric <laughs> hospital later on so I'm looking at the period 1800 to 1850 and I've been researching the lives of the girls and young women who lived at the school um, so looking into who they were what their backgrounds were how they found themselves at the school uh, because despite the name female orphan school almost none of the girls were actual orphans most of them had at least one living parent so I'm looking into what their lives were, both at the school and after their time at the school, um, and I'm writing about it. Um, but I'm drawing on not just the archival document documentation that's available, but the kind of contextualization of the era. So it's an interesting kind of hybrid of fiction and nonfiction, which makes you, it challenging but fascinating. When you say um, that. The, the orphan bit is a bit of a misnomer. Was the school thing a bit of a misnomer as well? Was it, was it first and foremost a school? It was a school, certainly. Um, I mean, not in the, the ways that we would think of a school now. So yeah. the young women that were at the orphan school were given fairly rudimentary education in reading and writing, but the bulk of their quote unquote education was around very sort of feminine pursuits, you might say, um, lots of domestic things, you know, cooking, sewing, how to keep house, that kind of stuff, because 
the thinking, quite rightly, it turned out, was that most of them would go out into domestic service. Um, and in fact, when they were 13, the girls would all be um, what was called apprenticed out uh, to families to, to work for them as kind of uh, live-in maids and, and governesses and, and that kind of thing. So it was a school, but it certainly wasn't what we might think of as a, a particularly well-rounded education in today's context. And you know, in 1800, considering that the first uh, English settlers arrived here in, in 1788, 1800, that's not far into the journey of colonial Australia, is it? That's fairly early on. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and when I say that the school kind of changed its incarnations over the years, it was with regards to the backgrounds of the girls coming in. So from 1800 to about 1850, primarily all the girls were the children of convicts. Um, And then from 1850 onwards, when Australia was bringing in fewer convicts and more um, immigrants, they started to be the children of immigrants instead. So they were slightly more diverse in in terms of their background and, and where they'd originated from. And also the social issues that were affecting their families. Um, because often, you know, when the, um, in the 1800 to 1850 period, they would end up in the school because their mothers were convicts um, and they were working off their sentences through servitude and they were all live-in positions and they couldn't have their children with them. So they didn't have any other option um, but to send them to the school. And the other thing about the school that makes it more school-like than orphanage-like was that parents or the caregivers of the children in the few cases where they were actual orphans had to actually apply to get their daughters in there and they had to have uh, you know referees and and sort of connections people had to know about the existence of the school they had to sort of know people that would take the case of their girls on and sort of lobby for them to be um, enrolled there so yes they were kind of down on their luck and and impoverished and destitute in many cases but um They also did have arguably more connections than a lot of you kind of everyday convicts did, if that's even a term that I can use. It wasn't one of those euphemistic kind of schools that was basically a a prison for for naughty girls. Uh, It was something that people applied for and and took very seriously. Yeah, that's right. It was a real opportunity, right? It had a really good reputation. Um, it certainly wasn't a workhouse, which is a lot right. what a lot of people think. Um, there was the female factory, which was also in Parramatta, which was more of a workhouse kind of setup. Yeah, that was a comparison I was actually about to make is the yeah. factory, which is about what, about two kilometers, three kilometers away from from where the orphan school is, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And in fact, they did have, and one of the girls that I'm writing about as part of this residency, um, sometimes young women from the female factory would be employed again, quote unquote, as kind of monitoresses at the female orphan school. So they were, you know, domestic workers, but they had a bit more of a um, hands-on role with the girls. Um, So that was the sort of the, the, the cream of the crop from the female factory was sometimes allowed to work um, at the orphan school. Right. Okay. So, this isn't the first um, historical fiction writing you've done, obviously. You know, I, I read out all those list of achievements and awards and, and recognition and so forth. But when I when I contacted you say to ask you if we could do um, one of these mini masterclasses, you came back immediately with, we could talk about writing historical fiction ethically. 
Yes. I, mean, I think you said, in fact, you could, about uh, writing any fiction ethically, but we started off talking about historical fiction. So ethical historical fiction, I guess that the first question I have for you is, let's go to the opposite of that. What, what does unethical historical fiction look like? It's a really good question. Um, and you touched on my PhD there, uh, which I'm doing in English in the general sense, but specifically I'm looking at what you call settler noir, and I do love that genre. Um, and I'm researching an 1842 murder that happened here in the Blue Mountains. Um, and the ethics of doing that have really kind of informed the way that I'm also tackling the writing, the writer in residence um, writing, because the PhD is looking at um, a, a young girl called Caroline Collitz who was murdered in Mount Victoria in 1842. And the whole reason I wanted to do a PhD about her is because nothing has been written about her. It's all been written about the murder, the men that committed the murder, nothing about the victim herself. Um, so what I wanted to do and what I still want to do is essentially give her her voice back. So to do that unethically, to come back around to your question, would be to just imagine her as a character, to, you know, view her life and the context of her murder through my 21st century feminist lens to put words in her mouth and thoughts in her head that probably never would have happened. So to completely ignore the context of what life was like for young women in the 19th century here in New South Wales, um, which can be challenging to not do that because there isn't a lot of archival information available. You know, these girls, both Caroline and the girls at the orphan school, were often, if not completely illiterate, then as good as. So it wasn't like they were writing letters or keeping diaries that explored their inner lives. So to an extent, it has to be imagined. But to me, to approach it unethically would be to not even attempt to place them in the context of that time and to just write solely from an imaginative point of view and not try to ground it in fact at all, um, which means there's a lot of research involved to try and answer some of those questions of what would their lives have really been like. Um, so, yeah, the unethical thing is to just charge ahead, treat them as though they weren't real people and as though they are just fictional characters as opposed to real women. So basically treating them like a resource that you can mine rather than a, a story that you're trying to tell. That's exactly right. And I think it comes down to why you want to tell the story. Um, because if you just want to tell an interesting story about a murder, then you would probably take the sort of whodunit approach and spend a lot more time with the male characters and the male perpetrator and delving into their psyches. But that's why I want to tell that story and that's not why I wanted the residency at the orphan school because I want to be able to actually tell the stories of the women, um, you know, because I think women's stories are, are so often overlooked in general, but certainly the stories of women who were poor and uneducated and the daughters of convicts, you know, nobody cared about them at all. Yeah. Um, they were the lowest of the low. Um, so there was never a lot of effort made to, to bring their stories to light. So that's that's the why for me. And I think it's un, it's important to for any writer to sort of ask yourself that question, well, why is it important to tell these stories? And that will sort of guide you in making good ethical choices, I think. So do you think this is something that um, that we find in uh, 
in in true crime, for example. My, I, I'm not a massive reader of true crime, but my impression seems to be that oftentimes the the focus falls onto the process of finding of why the why the murderer did what they did, how how the story went down in in tracking them down, the the neat little moments of serendipity that led someone to be at this place at the wrong time, and mm-hmm. and, and so on and so forth. Do you find that often in true crime, people are ignoring the actual, even modern true crime, ignoring the life and the agency of the victims? Yes, 100%. (laughs) That's a very easy question for me to answer. Um, And, you know, a lot of the research that I'm doing for my PhD has been around that, around why that's the case and why we seem to consider women's deaths to have so much more value, at least in a literary sense, than their lives. Um, And that's what I'm trying to um, address and and hopefully even redress or reverse a little bit with the work that I'm doing. Um, And it can be applied to the female orphan school as well, because although the work that I'm doing around the lives of those young women isn't strictly true crime, um, it is in a sense because many of them were the daughters of convicts who were brought to Australia because of crimes. Um, Most of the time, what we would consider to be incredibly petty crimes like stealing a bolt of fabric or something like that. And for that, they're taken away from everything they've ever known and sent to the other side of the planet for God knows how long with their children in many cases. And then they arrive here and there's no social safety net for them. They can't care for their children, etc. So they are the victims of crime in a sense as well. Um, and there's no, um, there's just no insight or there's no interest in reflecting on firstly what made their mothers commit the crimes that they committed that resulted in their transportation and secondly no inquiry into what the lives of these girls are like there was just this very sort of savior complex of you know we will take them away from all this um temptation and and this unpleasantness and we'll put them in this school out in the country which is what Parramatta was at the time and um you know by keeping them away from the unsalubrious parts of society they will they will be good good girls um and I just find that really interesting about you know why why did the people who started the female orphan school although I'm sure they did have good intentions and truly wanted to, you know, give opportunities to young women that otherwise may not have had them. Why was the answer to them take them away from society rather than address the issues in society and try and make society better for everybody? Uh, yeah, I suppose the where my mind went to when you talked about um, coming out here without a safety net and then going, what do I do? Not so much with what do I do with my kids, so much as what do I do for my kids to give them any opportunity. Mm-hmm. My first place I went was well, you know, it was colonial Australia. That's how things were. And then I thought, hang on, if somebody asked me to send one of my kids away to never see them again, mm. that would be heartbreaking. And of course, it was heartbreaking for these people as well, as just as it was heartbreaking for mothers and fathers losing their kids for all of human history yeah i think the further back it happens the easier it is to just sort of gloss over this and go but it was a different time life was cheaper we only lived till 30 so if you died and you know know. yeah i think that is very much the case um there is this sense of i don't know because they lived in times when there was no ipads or internet 
that they didn't feel as deeply or think as fully or their lives weren't as complex and nuanced as our lives are now. And it's such a preposterous um, position to take really because, of course, you know, they 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 mourned their children and they were homesick for, for the only land they'd ever known and they didn't know if they'd see their families again. And, you know, again, to, to come back to the ethical questions of how you write these stories, to me it seems, you know, page one of the ethics handbook that you have to keep that in mind. You have to understand that in many senses they were exactly like 21st century people in that they felt the same things that we did and they you know people say oh you know you do the crime you do the time etc but you have to acknowledge that it's an entirely disproportionate response to be taken to the other side of the world for seven years or forever Mm. because you stole some fabric to make a dress to clothe your destitute children someone very close to me recently lost a, a family member to um not to COVID, but you know, because of the remoteness of where we all are right now, couldn't attend, couldn't even be there when that their significant other passed away and had to watch it on, on FaceTime. And it was easy to kind of go, that's terrible. And, of course, it is terrible. But then you, you think, but these people not that long ago when they got on the ship in, when they got on the ship in, in London or in England and mm-hmm. left, the people they were waving goodbye to at the dock they knew they would never see those people again. So that was effectively a... A death a, sentence, even death though it wasn't. Yeah. Certainly for that relationship, you know, there were maybe occasionally letters would get through, but there was no way you were ever going to see that person again. No, that's right. And, in fact, a, a couple of the girls from the orphan school did ultimately return to England, but they were extremely rare. Mm. Um, and sometimes, you know, if they died, it would take 12 months for a letter containing that news to even get back to their loved ones. So it's a year on and this is the first they're hearing about it, you know. Well, I was discussing with someone the other day, uh, James Cook apparently on two occasions came home, saw his wife, spent some time with his wife as husbands and wives do and then he would go off on an expedition and uh, on two occasions he came back to find that while he was away his wife had given birth to a child <laughs> yeah. who had subsequently died in childbirth. Yeah. So he'd never met the child that he had. So it was a, it was a different time. But I, I suppose what we're saying here is that the right thing to do is stop and consider just the human toll that that takes on a person to lose someone yeah. in that way. That's absolutely right. I mean, one of the young women that I'm writing about for the orphan school, her name was Jane Rogers. And I found the surgeon, the ship surgeon's journals um, on the ship that she came over on because she was a convict, actually. She was at the female factory and was then brought into the school to to work there as opposed to being a student there. And um, in the surgeon's diaries, she's referred to frequently of, of, because she's he calls her the worst of the worst. She's absolutely incorrigible and, you know, probably she just wasn't about to let herself be told what to do and, you know, she was rebelling in the only way that she could. But they used to shave the women's heads on board the ships if they misbehaved. That was their punishment, which to me is so, um, I mean, rightly or wrongly, women's hair is often such an important part of, of, of their identity as a, as, a, as a woman and, you know, that's such a cruel thing to do, I think. Um, but also within that same journal, there was lots of children on the on those ships um, and they would die of the conditions and malnutrition and and 
the viruses that would run rampant and it would just be a line oh mary smith's twins died last night mm-hmm. whatever and now mary smith is in the brig because she's misbehaving well of course she is she's mad with grief you know <laughs> but there was no empathy you know no acknowledgement of that and and you know i think as a writer a modern day writer trying to tell these stories the ethical thing the right thing to do is to have that empathy to tell those stories with empathy that they were never afforded ever in their lives yeah i find it interesting that often in in historical storytelling somebody with the most basic of human empathy is often held up as being some kind of hero because they dared to speak out against the the norm i mean the very fact that the 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 orphan school was established i think by marsden uh samuel marsden was the the man who it was him and the first governor. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure. I haven't heard another. He had a massive reputation. What did they call him? I, I can't remember the name. It was the lashing parson or the thrashing parson or the. Anyway, he was he was notorious for being incredibly violent. Yeah, he was very much of the fire and brimstone. You know, hellfire shall rain down upon thee kind of school of Christianity, which actually makes it, yeah, really odd that he hmm. would have pushed so hard for. A welfare institution. Um, maybe he thought he maybe he was, thought he was making up for all his horrible deeds by laying up treasure in heaven by doing one good thing. Maybe, but it definitely smacks, at least to me, of this is what I think I should do, rather than this is something that I'm truly passionate about. Maybe, maybe it was his ethics, you know, that prompted him to to do that. But at the same time, you know, there's writing from him in the very early days of the school where he talks about why the school needs to exist and how we must take these girls away from temptation. Mm. Um, because it's always about the girls, isn't yes. it? The, the onus is always on the girls to preserve their dignity or whatever. It's never on the people around them to to act responsibly yeah and of course that nothing nothing much has changed in that regard we still get addresses from people at the top of the pile in um, the australian defense force who say that female officers walking back from a night out shouldn't make themselves desirable or attractive yeah i know and girls get sent home showing their shoulders and like it's It's ridiculous um the other question i had for you then is in the work that you're doing, it's it's a fair while ago in Australian colonial history. And a lot of the family of these people would probably have either sort of it's it's either dwindled away to to no real connection. But how do you how do you approach something in a slightly cl- uh, closer time frame where there are family members? I'll give you an example. If I were to ro- want to write a, a screenplay about someone like, say, um, Banjo Patterson, mm-hmm. considering that Banjo Patterson had family and there are still descendants of Banjo Patterson, what is the ethical approach to telling their story? It's a good question. Um, and it's one I spend a lot of time thinking about, probably because my earliest incarnation of a career as a writer was as a journalist. So I was always having to approach families that had been through horrible experiences and, and try to encourage them to have put their faith in me to tell their story well. Um, And now too, even with the books I write about dogs, they're all about people's stories with dogs. So there's a lot of ethical considerations there. And and in those cases, I always show show them what I've written before it goes to print. 
because I want them to be happy with it, you know, because my my dog books are very feel good and they're supposed to be joyful and I don't want anything being published that that people aren't happy with. But I think that's very easy to do when you have immediate descendants, you know, for example, the dog's owner. Um, if I was writing about a dog that had existed 200 years ago, it might be a different scenario. There are certainly a lot of living descendants of young women that were at the orphan school. So I don't necessarily feel with the writing that I'm doing about the orphan school that I need to be tracking down distant relatives and and asking for their permission, Um, especially also because I'm kind of fictionalizing what I'm doing. So I'm taking real people and as much real detail and information as I can find. But then, as I said, I'm kind of contextualizing that with life at that time and and kind of coming up with a a bit of a hybrid. Um, And also, you know, for practical reasons, just the timescale of the residency, I just wouldn't have time to to find all the people. Um, With my PhD, on the other hand, there are a lot of living descendants of not the murder victim, but her husband, he was from a very well-to-do family here in the mountains. And there are a lot of uh, members of that family still living. And I feel like they're not probably going to like what I'm, (laughs) what I believe their family's involvement was in the, in the story. Um, But I don't necessarily feel like I need to get permission. I think from an ethical perspective, you know, I'll just try and be as fair and balanced as I can and arm myself with as much fact as I can. But the rest of the time. That does make it difficult to navigate though, doesn't it? I mean, in my own family, we just, we, we knew for a long time that um, there was a, a convict in our family. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were members of our extended family who were very keen to dismiss that as being a, a frame up, a set up by <laughs> a rich family in, in, in Manchester at the time who, who set him up so that the rich guy in town wouldn't, wouldn't go down for this thing. And, and they, a couple of people were very determined to make this the commonly accepted version of what happened with Richard Howarth Heaton. Uh-huh. Well, my brother went to the old Bailey and looked up his, the records and went, no, he did all those things. <laughs> he he was definitely did it. The funny thing was that that side of the family was really kind of annoyed by this and the rest yeah. of us really, really excited by it because if we're going to have a convict in the family, my view is have a proper one. Like, Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, gosh, I've got a similar story, but a much more recent one in that my grandmother's best friend, um, her son was tried for and convicted of the attempted murder of his wife. And growing up, it was always, oh, he never did this. You know, it was a stitch up, all the rest of it. And then once I got older and actually read the details of the case, he so clearly and badly tried to murder his wife. It's a wonder he ever thought he would get away with it. And the fact that anyone ever believed he was innocent just goes to show, I suppose, their loyalty to his mother. But, oh, yeah, he did it for sure. But there's another side of that coin, especially with regards to the orphan school work that I'm doing, which comes down to own voices. Um, So there is a perception that only white children were at the female orphan school, but that's not correct. There were Indigenous children there as well. And I had that perception when I first started the research. And then I came across um, several Indigenous uh, young girls who were there. But I really want to include them in the writing that I'm doing. I really want to tell these stories. But I immediately felt uncomfortable about it because what I'm doing is not 
100% fact-based. You know, I'm taking all the facts I can find, but then I'm having to weave those into fiction mm. just because there isn't enough fact to write straight nonfiction. Um, so I've had a lot of conversations with the people at the Whitlam Institute and people at Westwards about what's appropriate. Um, can I tell these stories at all? being that I'm a white woman who has no Aboriginality in my heritage, is it appropriate for me to do that? And if not, is it appropriate to just leave these girls out of the story, which doesn't feel right either? They should be included in the history because they are part of the history. Um, so there's a lot, I think, of ethical uh, questions to be asked around that. And the way that we're approaching it is... Um, We've spoken to um, the first Australian First Australians Writers Network. Um, so we're actually consulting with some Indigenous writers to get their take on it. Um, they have very kindly undertaken to try and speak to some of the elders in the area that the girls were taken from to be brought to the orphan school to see if there is any um, oral history you know, mm. remaining about those girls and what happened and what were the circumstances that saw them taken. So. Yeah, that's, I haven't written that one yet because I'm still not 100% sure that I will. Um, I really want to make sure that I do the right thing because, you know, with my PhD, the, my whole kind of reasoning for it is I just got so angry that so many other people had tr tried to tell Caroline's story without putting Caroline in it anywhere. <laughs> um, so I wanted to restore her to her own story. So how can I be doing a whole PhD with that as the driving force and then turn around and tell, try to tell the stories of young Indigenous girls about whose lives I know nothing? Hmm. Um so but that's been a really. They can't afford to leave them out of the story either, because that that doesn't that isn't fair to anyone, and it's it's basically. That's right. That would be whitewashing the history of the place. So I think in the interim, what I'm going to do is sort of refer to the girls in some of the other writing that I'm doing. So I might be writing about one of the white girls, but I might have one of the indigenous girls as part of that story. But I'm not directly trying to tell her story mm. um but then again you know that doesn't sit quite right with me either because is that just paying lip service to this whole other aspect of history that um took place at the orphan school so sometimes these ethical questions can't be answered right away <laughs> That's right. And, the, and the whole the whole own stories question is going to be a question we continue to discuss for a long time i think because it, in in the last five years or so it has become very much in the forefront of the conversations we have about this kind of thing. Yeah. I've got yeah. one last question for you. And it, yeah, James Frey, mm -hmm. James Frey, who wrote A Million Little Pieces and his second book was called uh, My Friend Leonard. You know, I don't, I'm sure you recall James Frey. I do. I haven't read either of the books, but I remember no. the controversy. In 2003 and 2005, he wrote these books where they were marketed as being memoirs. Mm. And everyone went, these books are incredible. And then it came out they weren't memoirs, they were fiction. And mm. suddenly everybody said they were terrible. Yeah. And Oprah in particular tore him down and said, we, we set you up as being an amazing memoirist and now you're, you're, you've shown it's all a lie. Yeah. Is a good story not just a good story? Um, that's a really interesting question. Well, first of all, I wonder how much of that 
the James Frey situation and there's also been other ones like remember Helen Demidenko way back when representing her story as being fact when in fact it was very much fiction um I wonder how much of it is the author misrepresenting themselves and how much of it is a bit of a marketing decision on the part of the publisher to not exactly lie but sort of lie by omission um in a sense and maybe it's a combination of the two things I don't know are publishers being hoodwinked are they being sort of calculating knowing that it will sell better if it's pitched as a memoir I don't know but you have to think that if if they'd been if they were that good then if they'd been released as I haven't read them either but um if they'd been marketed as fiction and they were that good then they would have had a great response anyway um you'd think so but remember like when James Frey was when those books came out and it was a very early naughty thing that misery memoir remember that everyone was writing misery memoir I think I mean it's probably a bit like true crime why we devour true crime the way we do it's just that the thrill of proximity I think um you know, this is a terrible story and I can't stop reading it, but thank God it didn't happen to me, you know, there but for the grace of God kind of thing. This is why we do ghost tours and... and, and yeah. yeah. So I think for sure a good story is a good story and should be able to hold up on its own, but there is just an added, an added thrill, I suppose, a visceral sort of feeling if we think it's real. I don't know why that is, you know, probably a psychiatrist would be better off answering the why question, but... I don't think I guess it's, it was an, a very early example of, in a sense, of cancel culture where they, yeah. you know, because you've made this one, and I'm not suggesting you did the right thing at all. Yeah. Fact, a lot of other things that James Frey has done since that pretty much convinced me that he's he's, he's not a very nice guy. No. But, but at the same time, I, I'm, it's a bit like the, the, the uh, Kevin Spacey thing. I think Kevin Spacey is an amazing actor, but apparently we're not supposed to like usual suspects anymore because of some horrible things that Kevin Spacey did. And it's- yeah, it's that whole question of separating the art from the artist um, and I don't think it's a blanket answer. I mean, look at Michael Jackson, for example. I'll, right. I'll never listen to another Michael Jackson song because, sure, I can separate the art from the artist within reason but, you know, not when they allegedly or whatever did mm. really egregious things. Um so, yeah, I mean, if it was the author knowingly deceiving the audience and there was no sort of encouragement from the publisher or any of that, then I think it's not ethical at all. Mm. Um, but it might still be a good read. <laughs> Who knows? But I do think, you know, certainly coming from a background in journalism, um, I think that at the end of the day we should always try to be as honest as we can. I don't think we should go into something thinking, I'll just deceive people and it'll be fine. Like remember, um, oh, God, that movie with Hayden Christensen where he's that, he, he works for Shattered Glass. Have you seen that one? Oh. oh, he's this fantastic sort of young whiz kid feature writer for a really prestigious uh, Washington, D.C. political magazine and it's discovered that he just made up all his stories. So he went into it with the intention of deceiving he wasn't trying to do the right thing and then fudged a few things here and there. He just made it all up and tried to pass it off as real. So that's that's one end of the spectrum, I think. And then, you know, there's probably less less egregious little fibs at the other end. But I do think whatever end of the spectrum we're on, you know, you should at least start by 
trying to be honest. <laughs> That's right. And hope that you don't find yourself in some sort of orphan school because you were a bad girl, right? Yeah, that's right. Oh, my goodness. You should see after it was the orphan school, it did become um, what was very non-politically correctly termed a lunatic asylum. Mm. And the list, there's a list in the building of the reasons that you could um, become or be committed to a mm. lunatic asylum. Oh, my goodness. The things that would get you labelled a bad woman were just insane. Like Hysteria for a start. Yeah, and just being a bit sad or you know questioning opinions or you know like for example if you lost four of your eight children which mm. would drive even the most stable person mad you could end up in the lunatic asylum because you were grieving like mm. it's just yeah the things we did <laughs> indeed laura Greaves, thank you so much for talking with us today about ethical fiction we could go on and on and on but we shan't when do you wrap up the uh when does the fellow the writer in residence wrap up um, so I'll have it all completed by the end of this month being August. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I'm not sure what the next step will be. I know that when we're allowed to go places again, if that ever happens, the aim is to have some kind of a public event at the school, um, uh, where I can kind of talk about what I've learned and, and, mm -hmm. you know, the choices that I've made with the writing. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, cause it's an incredible building. I think once, once we're, out of lockdown and people are allowed to go places, everyone should do the tour of the building because it's absolutely fascinating and beautiful. Yeah, um, yeah and then we'll see see what happens next. Cool. Well, thank you very much. We'll talk soon. Thanks for having me.